You're listening to I Survived the Wild Outdoors podcast, where real outdoors men and women share their heroic tales of survival. I'm your host, Brad Mathewson, and this is their story. There is no timestamp on trauma. There isn't a formula that you can insert yourself into to get from whore to healed. Be patient and keep taking small steps each day, for it is a journey of mind over matter and you will persevere and become stronger because of it. My guest today knows all too well the cold, hard reality of trauma that can change your life plan in the blink of an eye. On November 28, 1992, a young high school senior from the state of Maine named Chad Thompson was on a deer hunting excursion with a few fellow classmates. As they were walking away from their car, a thunderous explosion broke the stillness of Mother Nature's animal kingdom and would set in motion a teenager's lifelong drive to never give up. Can you tell us what happened that day, Chad? So when I was uh, 18, um, super avid hunter was uh, growing up uh, with my family. Um, I uh, decided to go out with a couple of friends um, we were seniors in high school, um, and generally the one gentleman I always hunted with um, for several years, and then we had a new guy come along that was a close friend who was new into the hunting scene and the hunting world and always liked to listen to our stories, and we decided to skip school one day, last day of hunting season, uh, November 28th, and, uh, 1992, uh, we went to familiar hunting grounds that we always hunted uh, off off the, what they call the stud mill road in Milford, Maine. Um, we um, went to the typical spot that we always would hunt. Um, very cold morning. Uh, I can remember that vividly. Like we were, like it was yesterday. It was really, really brisk and, and, and uh, chilly out that day and frosty. And we decided that we were going to move locations because of, um, we hadn't seen anything, and we uh, proceeded up a, an old, uh, it was an old road, old twist trail that was uh, probably more appropriate for a pickup truck uh, to to get up through. And uh, one of my buddies had uh, a small little Chevy Z24 car, really low profile car. Took our way, picked our way up through um, the road, and got to a spot where we wanted to pull over, and then we were just going to proceed by foot to go into. Um, a particular ridge that we wanted to hunt and um one of my friends and i we got out of the vehicle got all of our gear on and um uh, the other friend that was in the back seat was a little bit slower getting his gear on and finishing his coffee or soda or whatever he had and and uh, we started to walk and the gentleman my buddy that was in the back uh, of the car i uh, was a little bit slower than us kind of getting out of the vehicle and we had our coats on and had loaded our guns and we started walking side by side and and my friend uh, who was with us came out a little bit later uh, just a you know whatever a few seconds later but he was behind us and he had a 30 30 uh, lever action um, rifle um, that he was loading and had gloves on mittens on and was uh, walking behind us I'm not really sure the distance it was really close probably within 15 yards, 20 yards. 
And as he proceeded to load his gun, again, he was behind us, and uh, he accidentally pulled the trigger uh, as he was um, uh, putting the gun on safety. Um, with the lever action, you know, you got to kind of pull the trigger and keep your hand uh, thumb on the on the hammer so it eases off, and um, it went off. And I uh, got shot in the left leg, wow. mid-thigh. Um, yeah, and um, it was almost like I felt it before I heard it. Um, it was hot. It uh, blew through the center of my thigh and exited right out the front of my, my leg. Fortunately enough, uh, it never hit my femur, didn't hit the bone at all, um, but it had complete, half severed, three uh, quarter severed my femoral artery. Yikes. And I look down and I've got blood and steam just shooting out the front of my leg. I was still standing. Um, and then it was kind of chaotic, as you can imagine. Uh, yeah. Two young guys, 18 years old three young guys, excuse me, 18 years old, you know, really no medical experience. However, I think just just common sense, it was sit down, we got to get the blood, we got to get, we got to stop this thing from bleeding because I was, it was just shooting out my leg. And I laid on the ground and my friend that was behind me ran up because it was just pandemonium, just, just, crazy you know scared we all were scared as you can imagine all in shock immediately took his coat off applied pressure to my thigh tied his shirt sleeves together as a tourniquet okay and then hatched out a plan to pull the vehicle up to where i was um proceeded to put me into the back of the vehicle I can remember elevate your leg again. We're we're just kids, and these yeah. are all things that, as you get older, you learn, you know, through just reading or specific, you know, situations where you learn to elevate above your heart and and to slow the bleeding down. And it just was almost like instinct. So I laid in the back of the car, had my leg up on kind of the little sill, had the shirt sleeves tied tight. Um, we proceeded to turn the car around and instead of driving down the road in a the nonchalant way that we entered coming into the piece of wood that we were hunting, there was no consideration of the ruts, the rocks and things on the way out. It was just, we need to get out of the woods now. No cell phones, no CB radios, none of that. We didn't have them back then. And, um, we just, it was a bumpy ride maybe down about a mile until we got to another, this is logging area. So it's a maze of roads, main artery roads. You know, we we knew where we were. It wasn't like we were lost. We just, we knew it was a, a ways back to civilization. And so we went down that road just, you know, like the car was on fire and very, very rough ride out. As we got on to the next road, which there were several roads that we needed to get on before we got on the main artery, which is the main logging road, we started, I remember my buddy that was driving was saying, I'm losing oil pressure. And in my mind, I'm just, you know, thinking, oh my God, you know, already in shock, already scared to death. 
already, you know, just feeling, getting to the point where I was feeling extremely tired. And we just, just kept going and no camps, no houses, again, no, nobody. We get off that road onto another road. And when we got on that road, I remember the driver, my buddy was like, you know, the car's not acting right. And again, he's going as fast as he can go. No oil pressure. And we pulled in and so we, we, we were going along and we, we noticed a pickup truck next to the road. And again, I'm, I'm in the back, like feeling like I'm ready to fall asleep yeah. and just blood everywhere. And so they pulled in behind the pickup truck that had no occupants in it. Nobody was around it. And they all just jumped out, laid on the horn, hollered, screamed everything that they could. I don't know how long that was, the length of time that was, but hunters started coming out of the woods, three of them. Okay. And they were all three friends, all three lifelong friends, brothers, friends that just hunted all their life together in that area. They had a hunting camp near there, and they went into – you know, a, a, a different mode. I don't know what they were going through and what they were thinking, but they got me out of the back of the truck. They put me in the uh, back of the car, excuse me, and they put me in the back of the truck. There's a spare tire in the back of the truck. Again, elevated leg. Yeah. And again, I I just, <laughs> I don't know. It just it was weird because I was, I kept my eyes closed and they had the little sliding glass window in the back of the pickup truck where they were basically hollering out instructions to my buddies because they, my buddies stayed in the back of the truck and they took really, they took all their jackets off and they laid them on because I was cold. I was, I, I've never been that tired. I was so tired and they just kept saying, keep them awake, keep them awake. Don't let them fall asleep. And so um, they just kind of put their arms around me to keep me warm and they were, you know, trying to, talk to me, trying to say certain things to keep me awake. I just, in my mind, I had my eyes closed and I just was seeing like my life in my head and just in a really, I don't know, I should say a dark place, but it was just kind of a weird spot in my, my mind and what was going through it. Cause I could hear all of the commotion around me, but I almost felt like I was at peace. Okay. I didn't feel like I was like in a lot of pain necessarily, but I just felt like I'm like so tired and they just kept shaking me, waking me up. And all I can hear is the older men in the front talking to the boys in the back, like, keep them awake. How's he doing? What's, what's going on? Um, and you could all, and, and they're just going down these dirt roads and all you can hear is, rocks going through the woods hitting trees that they're just passing people that laying on their horn you know they're we're still in logging roads i'm not exactly sure the time frame from when they picked me up until they got into kind of into town but they dropped one of the hunters off at one of um one of the first houses that they came to to call 911 and then the guys that were driving is like we just got to go we just got to keep going. We're going to go as far as we can go until the ambulance catches up to us and bring him to the hospital. And um, we got through town uh, in a town called Old Town. Went through all the lights, and there's a police officer somewhere near the center of town. And 
saw us go through the lights and basically pulled us over and got on the loudspeaker and basically said, everybody get away from the vehicle. He couldn't see us in the bed of the truck. And my buddy, uh, one of my buddies uh, had a white T-shirt on and he's got his arms around me. And he's just like, I mean, his shirt is almost black with blood. He, stand, he, he sits up and he looks over the tailgate. He's like, our buddy's been shot. Our buddy's been shot. And then the police officer comes to um, the tailgate and looks over it. And I can remember it just like it was yesterday. He said, you're going to be all right, son. You're going to be all right. And thank goodness that the um, fire department and ambulance and stuff were very, very close within probably, I don't know, maybe a half a, half a mile from where the police officer pulled us over. Okay. So then the ambulance came and you can imagine it's just mass commotion um, with just people talking. What are we going to do? How are we going to do this? Basically, the plan was to cut my my pants off and then put on, I don't know, it was like some sort of brace that went over my leg that they filled full of air to uh, to make compression on my whole leg. And again, transported me out of the pickup truck, put me in the back of the ambulance. I'm not quite sure, but I want to say it was probably within 20 minutes, 30 minutes of being shot. Um, and that was a long journey driving there that morning, just doing normal speed. So we were, <laughs> we were going very fast, get out of the woods. And then um, ambulance brought me to the Eastern Maine Medical Center where came to the emergency room. They took me out of the ambulance, ambulance, brought me inside. Again, I'm still awake. I'm still conscious and um, still have my wits about me, but still in the very in shock, very tired. And I can remember the people asking me questions and I'm 18 at the time. And I'm like, they're asking me all these, you know, health questions, my allergics or stuff. Again, I'm, I don't remember the exact questions that they were asking me, but it just seemed like it was odd that I was still awake and conscious, conscious to, to, to go through uh, and answer questions. I signed two consent forms to have surgery. Um, the nurse came in to the room, and this is kind of funny, but probably not funny. Uh, she said, uh, I need to put a – I had never been in the hospital. Okay. I never – I had uh, my tonsils out when I was in second grade, and that's the only, you know, time that I ever spent – in a hospital. I mean, I had, you know, I was a boy, I had stitches and never a broken bone, never, ever had a broken bone. Really. That was the only thing that's ever happened to me. That was that, to that severity, obviously the losing a limb isn't, uh, isn't, uh, something that happens every day, but I never had been in the hospital. It was a weird thing. I never had been just for my tonsils when I was in second grade and that was it. And, um, so she's, she's the nurse says, we got to put a catheter in you. And I'm like, okay. Like, I have no idea what that means. No. <laughs> <laughs> and she comes out with this tube and KY. And I'm like, where is that going? And she tells me, and I'm like, oh my God. Okay. I mean, what, what else could happen? You know what I mean? Just yep. Do whatever you need to do. So I barely, I, I don't remember it, but it, I know it wasn't comfortable. And uh, so we, um, I go into the OR. I, and have surgery, um, many hour surgery. 
Um, I'm not sure the exact time, but it was six hours, eight hours, something along those lines, long time in the, in the surgery. And um, get out of surgery, still have my leg. I hadn't lost my leg. Um, and I'm surrounded by my parents and some, some family members who worked in that particular hospital um, and asking me all kinds of questions. My mother later told me, you know, she got the call and thought, well, he got, you know, minor injury. We're going to bring him home tonight and not known the severity of it. So this was November 28th. Yep. And I ended up spending two months in the hospital. Um, so while I was in the hospital, you know, I had a variety of surgeries, I think maybe a dozen total, but it was more like debridement different surgeries to make sure that, you know, things were still, uh, blood was flowing. There wasn't any sort of blood, um, um, wasn't having any you know, leakage where they were had repaired things, but they literally, you know, it entered the shot, entered the back of my thigh, exited the front of my thigh. Again, never hit my femur, probably would have blown, blown my leg off in the woods with a high powered rifle that close. Oh, yeah. So that was one thing that I had going for me too, besides obviously the hunters that saved my life and the surgeons that were at the hospital that day that, um, you know, really were the best of the best. And they just happened to be there on that particular day. So a lot of stars aligned for me throughout this whole process, getting to the hospital, who was there, you know, and, um, so I had, I think I was in the hospital for maybe eight days. And I can remember one of the nurses had gone because I, I, I was, I couldn't feel my leg. I couldn't feel my leg from like mid shin down. I, could, I had a little brace on it called AFO that kept my foot from dropping. Um, I didn't want when they did bandage changes and things like that because they didn't they didn't close up my leg they wanted to heal from the inside out okay. so it was like wide open i mean it was just i mean you, 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 i mean like you said it was a very high powered rifle shot yep. from a very close range so as you can imagine it was very bad to look at and i was not wanting to look at it so every time they would come in four times a day do dressing changes you know, a normal procedure. They'd give me a towel. I throw it over my face. They do the dressing change. And um, so one day, it was like I think it was day eight, day nine. Um, the nurse had gone to get me some water so I could brush my teeth. And I'm just sitting there, just waiting for her to come back. And I just I felt like I was like I peed the bed. Okay. And it was all warm underneath me. So I lifted the sheets up and I look and I'm sitting in a pool of blood. And so um, I holler at her. She comes back. She applies pressure to the back of my leg um, and scrambles on, calling down to the OR, getting people to come in. I mean, it, to me, it was almost like I've seen a lot of movies and it seemed like I was in a movie yeah. because of the people that were rushing in, how they were communicating with each other, you know, trying to figure out where the bleeding was coming from. They knew it was coming from my leg and what ended up happening in one of the grafts that they had grafted, a, uh, it was an artery 
or vein in my leg, probably an artery that, that just opened up. And then I started bleeding, bleeding out again. <laughs> and um, so they put me um, uh, the, the, almost at an elevated position where my brought my legs up. Like they, they brought the, the, the foot of the bed up at an angle to bring my lower body above my heart. She held pressure on my leg for, I believe it was two hours. Oh my because gosh. they couldn't get me into the OR because there was no OR space to get me into. There was no OR. There was nothing available. So they kept the tourniquet. She's holding pressure. She does not want to let go of my leg and just hung on to it. I finally get into the OR, have surgery. And I had had on my top of my foot, they had put like a couple of, with a marker, a couple of X's. So when they went to check pulses in my foot, Every time I would come out of the OR prior to that, I would see them go over my foot to check my pulse. Okay. And they were always right on the X's when they checked it. This time when I came out of the OR, I can remember just coming out of that fog, out of the OR and out of the surgery, and I could see the nurse. She was all over my foot. She was all over, couldn't see anything. And the whole time I didn't realize it, but the surgeon was sitting in a stool like to the left of me I didn't see him and so I'm just like I feel like this sense of panic because it didn't it didn't feel right it didn't seem right even though I was like groggy and kind of medicated not kind of but definitely medicated um and I looked over at him and he says well he says I've got two he, he, well how did he put it he said he said you've been through a lot more than more than a lot of people could ever endure and you have a very significant injury as you know and I'm going to give you a couple of options neither one of them are great but you're 18 um, this decision and choice is up to you and we have 24 hours to make the decision so he started plotting out this experimental procedure that he could do that had a lot of risks, very low percentage of actually working to revascularize my leg okay. and to fix it or amputation. And so he said to me, you know, you've got, you've got, you've got 24 hours. We, we need to do something soon because you, you have very little, if any blood flow. And I'm like, okay. So I had had, the whole time that I've been in the hospital, like I mentioned earlier, I had a substantial amount of family and friends. And if it wasn't for them, I, I, I just, I don't know where I would be. I just, I'm, I'm blessed with people that, that I'm surrounded by that love me and care for me. And we're all a big family. And they were all at my room when they brought me up from the OR and all of them, grandfather, uncles, parents, girlfriends, sister, friends. It was, it, it, they just were at the entrance to my room, in my room, and I could see the, the look in their face that they all had been informed of my two, my two choices. And I got in the room and looked at them all and said, my leg's coming off tomorrow. And they just, you know, gasped, like, are you, what are you, are you sure? I mean, da-da-da-da. I go, no, I'm not going to live life 
with a leg that I can't feel risks of other things, having more medical procedures down the road. Um, I, I just, I just felt this was the choice, like not even questioning it. I need to, I need to take, I need to have my leg amputated. Wow. So huge decision as you can, yeah. <laughs> as you can well, as you can well understand and, and, um, for anybody. And, um, I, I, I just, I made it like I knew definitely there was no, there's nothing in my head that said, consider the other choice. It was amputation. So I made that decision. And, um, the next day I go into, um, you know, the, the, the preoperative room to get ready for surgery. And they were going to put an epidural in my back to pretty much numb me from the waist down yeah. um, to have the surgery. And so the nurse in the, in the preoperative room comes in and says, I've been working at the hospital for a lot of years and this has never happened, but we're going to make an exception. You got a lot of people that want to wish you well. And I said, okay, sounds good. And I'm laying on my, my stomach because they're doing this procedure in my back. Yep. And um, one at a time, two at a time, people came in, and it was family, loved ones, teachers, local people that just had, <laughs> were paying attention, you know, and cared. And so um, um, they did that. They came in, had the surgery, uh, came out of surgery, and um, started the, the healing process. I, I still had a substantial wound in my leg. Um, it required multiple dressing changes every day. I got to the point where I started kind of thinking of <laughs> looking at my leg like I was looking at a piece of meat. That was the only thing that I could think of, like, in, in a way to, to make it feel like it was it was okay and I didn't feel sick to my stomach or scared to look at it. I just kept thinking, okay, this looks like a piece of meat. It's all I could think of in my head. And because it just was just an awful thing to look at. And so I spent from November 28th to the end of January. Um, I had several couple days that I was able to get out of the uh, hospital and, um, go to uh went to church for christmas christmas mat christmas eve which was a special day where christmas eve at our our church is massive just so many people people that you know come home from wherever they live to be with their families for church just was basically standing room only and uh i felt it was it was weird because the the priest that was doing the you know the beginning part of the the mass um, started talking about recognizing people in the community. And uh, he spent, I don't know, probably well, five minutes talking about me and had me stand up. It was, you know, you would think that people would cheer at a sporting event and not at church, but <laughs> there was uh, a lot of clapping going on and a lot of tears and just was uh, one of those moments that was uh, pretty special uh, that I was able to, Really, you know, as time went on, really get to pre appreciate community and, um, you know, people that care and people that who don't even know you. You know, I mean, I had people, so many people that I didn't even know 
that just would come up to me and just, you know, say nice things and wish me well and tell me stories of people that they knew that had gone through an amputation or whatever. But I just felt it was uh, uh, it just almost I don't know. It just it just seemed it seemed odd some, in some respect that 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 going to church and people clapping. <laughs> I don't know. In my mind, I've been to church many times on Christmas. And I don't ever remember anybody clapping no, and cheering never. about something. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the other time uh, I got a chance to go out, I there was a couple of rivalry, school rivalries. You know, again, I was a senior in high school, um, played sports, um, went to a rivalry game between a local town and our town, and and it was one that always had standing room only and uh um same thing happened uh the announcer before the game you know gave a brief intro and a little brief description of what i had gone through and i was in a wheelchair you know i was just still basically in the hospital but they let me out for just a little bit so i could go and enjoy some normalcy and uh wheeled me in front of the crowd and standing ovation and uh Pretty, uh, pretty special moment. Yeah. If you can imagine that, you know, kind of gives me goosebumps now just thinking about it. Um, but they were all cheering me on, and uh, um, in my mind, I was going to let them down, and I was going to just push forward and and do what I needed to do and get healed up, and you know, do what I could to, you know, move forward into a kind of a normalcy as best as I could. Um, and then I came home, you know, I came home after a couple of months and, uh, you know, I still had an in-home nurse that came in and took care of me. And, you know, it was a long healing process, as you can imagine. It was just such a big wound that they wanted to heal up from the inside out. And, but, uh, that particular leg is all scarred up. And, um, then I went into, you know, the waiting game to heal up so I can get a prosthesis yep. and, um, that was uh that was an interesting process again i, I don't know if you, you appreciate the resources that you have now and that are at your fingertips and and you go back and you reflect on that point in time like where did we find stuff Did we go to a library did we you know uh someone give you a book you know we just didn't have that stuff readily available and i just in my mind just had to try to figure out how to use a prosthesis and how to walk with it I had a very, very challenging time with the prosthesis because of discomfort. Okay. When they did my amputation, they did what they call a guillotine amputation where they just cut my leg off. And they didn't, nowadays, probably back then they did it too, but for whatever reason, they didn't do a skin flap and a muscle flap that would go over the very end of your limb to give you a little bit of protection where the bone was cut. Okay. And they just did a skin graft and guillotine amputation. So it was really kind of gnarly at the end of my leg. And, um, but in my mind, I got shot. I survived. This isn't going to feel good. And no. but I didn't have anybody to tell me that, you know, it's, it, it's, it shouldn't be painful. Right. Okay. And so I was referred to a, a local company um, to have my prosthesis made. Super great people, you know, um, occasionally I'd see a prosthetic wearer amputee in the waiting room. It was kind of to myself. I didn't really like pick up a conversation and ask questions or anything. I just, 
just wanted to be me and just just be in my little world and um um but I never felt really like the first couple of years really depressed and and um but I needed to heal up i I, I wasn't going to be able to go to college right off because it was I still needed to heal I was on crutches for a year and wearing the prosthesis was a, was hard because it just was, it was uncomfortable it was just it was painful yep. and um so I ended up um I ended up uh taking a year off from going to college and my lifelong dream was to go to Maine Maritime Academy which is a very very well known school uh, in the country really for what they do it's a merit, uh, an engineering school that yep and marine biology and things like that but I, my goal was to to be a, a power engineer um, and um, I had taken the year off a couple of you know prerequisite courses at a local uh, community college just that I needed for going to school there and then I started going to school there and I just found that I had kicked the crutches after about a year but I had found that that it was a, just a very very hard it was just was it just was my leg was uncomfortable and sore almost every step and um just i was i was going back and forth to the prosthetic office to 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 have adjustments and different things like that to try to get it so that i could feel like it wouldn't be sore either sitting down or standing up or walking just seemed like every scenario i was in i just couldn't get comfortable so i ended up going to school and uh uh, it, that that piece of it was very hard because at f- the first five years that I was a amputee, I never wore shorts. Very very self conscious about it, you know, and single and didn't want people to know because I didn't want them to treat me differently. And yep. and um, I wanted to be like everybody else. I wanted to do what my buddies did. I wanted to go golfing. I wanted to fish. I wanted to hunt. I wanted to just hang out and and be normal. And I didn't want to stick out. I didn't want people to feel bad for me. I didn't want any of that stuff. And so um, I got to my, I, w- I was taking my vehicle, my truck from from um, uh, r- building to building where the classrooms were. And they might have been only separated by 100 yards. Okay. I just couldn't walk that distance. And so I got into the summer before my junior year and had to make a very, very tough decision that I can't do this. I'm a liability. I, I couldn't go in, you know, those types of scenarios, working in a power plant, you know, traveling, walking up and down stairs, you know, carrying anything heavy. I could barely walk from point A to point B. Yeah. And so I made the very challenging and heartbreaking choice to – not continue on with my lifelong dream as much as it killed me to, to, to do it very emotional. Um, I decided I just, I, I can't do it. And so started reevaluating things and, um, ended up moving in the Southern part of the state to a, um, college to, for business. And so spent about a year down there living with a couple of friends in an apartment Worked at night, went to school during the day for business. And towards the end of my first year at this college, I got an infection in my leg where I had like a hole at the bottom of my leg. 
that, again, probably, I shouldn't say probably, definitely hindsight, I, I, I should have had my leg looked at and stopped doing certain things like staying on it all day long, going golfing with it, not paying attention to different pains that were never there, but all of a sudden started popping up and um, was preventable, right? And I got an infection. I had to move back home. I had to stay off my leg for many, many, many weeks until my leg healed. So then now I'm at another crossroad, you know, what am I going to do? I can't move back down to Southern Maine. I'm going to go to the University of Maine, which is close to my parents' house, and continue on to get a business degree. Well, again, this whole journey, you know, to this point, which is probably about four years after my accident, again, I'm just continuing to be in pain, continuing to have issues, continuing to let my leg really dictate what I could do or not do. And I ended up... um, only going to school there for like the first semester. And then I started my own business. I started a uh, hydroceding business. I got in the landscape business, probably not well advised to do because of how labor intensive it was, yep. how you're doing the work you're doing in the heart of the summer and my leg would sweat and the prosthesis wouldn't fit and it would hurt all the time. And, you know, I just, I'm a worker. You know, I just put my nose down to keep going and grin and bear it, grit your teeth. And spent about five years in that business. And um, I had to get out of that business because I just physically couldn't do it. And um, so then that brought me to another business adventure where I got into the car wash business. So I had a partner and uh, we built a car wash tunnel wash, some self-service bays. I did that for many years. Um, and during the course of that, probably at the, at the beginning part of that journey, um, my mother worked at Old Town Canoe Company. Oh, really? And, yep, yep. She was a, a variety of jobs there, but did a sales and relationship, customer service type work. Yep. And the CEO of uh, Old Town Canoe at the time had uh, – Community knew I was struggling, not mentally, but just physically, just because, you know, it's a small knit community. Everybody knows certain things, you know, when all of a sudden something happens and change happens, people are starting to ask questions and what's going on with him and how's he doing type of thing. And I just wasn't, I wasn't getting anywhere comfort wise with the company that I was dealing with as far as making my prosthesis because it was one technician, one prosthetist, secretary, and really no one appreciate it more now because of the journey that I've gone through the resource piece. You didn't have resources. You didn't have somebody to call. You didn't have another colleague in the office to help troubleshoot, you know? So, um, my mom had had this, uh, gentleman that was her boss, CEO of the company, show her an article that was in like popular science. It was a company that was in Oklahoma that, um, was on the cutting edge of technology with prosthesis, with prosthetics, and um, really kind of innovative. And again, at that point in time, I really, I didn't really know a lot about the prosthetic stuff besides the guy that was suggesting and providing the services that I was getting. And outside of that, I didn't really 
research any of that. I didn't have an avenue to research it besides the magazines that were sitting at the, you know, at the at the office every day when I would flip through and look at articles or an advertisement or something. I didn't have any resources. I didn't have anybody to lean into. So this article came out into uh, Popular Science about this, this company that was on the cutting edge, and the company's name was Sabalich. John Sabalich, well-known prophetist, world-renowned. So we hatched out a plan that my mother and I were going to fly to Oklahoma and have a leg made by these folks. So we went out for a couple of weeks, a prosthesis made, and um, it was awesome. It was an amazing experience. Just beyond the prosthesis, the amputees that were there that I was able to talk to, I was able to ask questions to, able to learn from, able to be, you know, motiva- motivated by, able to to be inspired by and know that some of these people had had significant accidents, but some of them had more severe amputations like missing both limbs missing an arm and two legs you know i had people that i was watching that was walking around with a wearing shorts and i'm like what's my problem like like a hangnail compared to what these guys have and they're walking through the hotels you know just not caring at all and that was a big thing for me to see that because i was self-conscious but they empowered me to move beyond it because I was creating these um, walls. I was cre- I was creating these barriers for me to be comfortable with who I was and what my lifestyle was like and what my you know my my leg was and how how. how it's not going to grow back and you, you, you can't let it, you know, stop you from being you. And so that really was a kind of a moment in my, you know, my journey that, that, that helped me put the shorts back on, helped me go out into the community and realize that people were more curious when they looked at me versus thinking I was a freak, yeah. you know? And that was what I had in my head was like, these people are staring at me because I think that I'm like a freak and it's not that, you know, it's just human curiosity. People look when they see something that's not normal that they've hadn't seen before. So they're going to look, some people stare longer, more of the kids stuff that look more than the adults. And, um, so then I, you know, I, I started going to, uh, the Oklahoma had the leg made, came home, Awesome. I hadn't had any adjustments for multiple years, two years. Um, and then I needed to go back because my leg was bothering me again. So this time I went back with my dad. It was just, you know, it was just a special moment for both my parents, each of us to go out. And we spent two weeks each time we went out and um, got a chance to see really the same people that were out there, same company. But this time it was it was Novacare Sabalich, so a big company called Novacare acquired Sabalich, but the same people that worked there were the same folks that I had seen two years prior. So I go out, again, same issues with my leg, being sore, but I was more comfortable with the prosthesis that they had made than, than locally here in Maine. And um, 
I ended up um, having that second leg made, but but what was happening? But what was happening was I just they, they just couldn't get me comfortable. They had a lot of people prosthetists that make artificial limbs that worked here. They were all working with me, and up until really hours before I was getting on a plane after two weeks to go home, they're still tweaking my leg. They're still making adjustments to it. They're still modifying it. And um, I went home after those two weeks and um, basically didn't even wear that leg. Put the leg on that I had traveled out there to replace with a new one. I put the old one back on and just said, you know what? Is It is what it is. And um, I'm going to um, I'm going to just deal with what it is, you know, and I just had always felt in my mind like it's just it's supposed to be painful, you know, and and, and uncomfortable because it's an artificial limb. And and, you know, my leg had a lot of scarring and damage done to it. And so um, that company was then purchased by a company called Hanger and um, Hanger Prosthetics and Orthotics. And so Hanger had made some acquisitions of businesses and happened to come into Maine and acquire a business in the central part of the state. And so I started going to Waterloo, Maine, to uh, an office, I was invited to come to a special clinic that was put on by a gentleman by the name of Kevin Carroll. Now, Kevin Carroll um, is world-renowned, and if you've ever you've got kids, but I don't know if they're they're at the age where they saw um, Winter the Dolphin or the Dolphin Tale, the movie, it was a Disney movie, where there was a dolphin that had their tail amputated and a prosthetic tail was made. No, I've never seen that. that. Dolphin Tale 1 and 2, Morgan Freeman was in it. Okay. Uh, I think Naomi Judd was in it. But um, this movie was based around this Dolphin Tale. I don't mean to go on a tangent, but Kevin Carroll was the gentleman that made Dolphin Tale. And he was the actor Morgan Freeman played him in the movie. Well, Kevin was one of the, the head prosthetists that was in the Oklahoma office. He was the head guy there. And then when the business was purchased by Hanger, he became the vice president of prosthetics for Hanger. Now, Hanger is a national company all over the country, 165-year-old company, huge tradition. James E. Hanger was the first amputee of the Civil War. A lot of, lot of, lot of resources and a lot of knowledge and a lot of um, um uh, just innovative ideas and and um, um, technology and, and people, you know, smart people, talented people. And um, Kevin ended up staying on with the company after it was acquired. And what he did was he traveled around to various locations that Hanger had throughout the country to do special clinics called patient evaluation clinics. Basically what it was is every office would invite people to these clinics, prosthetic patients, and they got a chance to meet Kevin Carroll, and Kevin got a chance to meet them and take a look at their prosthesis, look at their leg, you know, 
give ideas, suggestions, you know, empower them. And so I got invited to this special clinic in Central Maine, Waterville, Maine, and Kevin was there because Kevin and I had known each other for, I guess, four or five years because I had gone to Oklahoma. He was one of the gentlemen that worked with me. And um, I was, again, meeting him again, you know, as a patient. And uh, he basically said, hey, let's go have a conversation. He said, okay. So we go into, uh, he's now my boss, Scott Heeper. He was making my leg at the time. Uh, let's go into Scott's office and have a conversation. All right. He says, uh, you know, I've known you for four or five years, and I think you know that you've got a lot of challenges with your leg just because of the way it was amputated and the scarring and nerve issues and things like that. He said, uh, I don't make these suggestions lightly because, you know, you're having surgery or you're, you're, I'm proposing surgery um, that could fix it. But I'm proposing surgery. You know, it's, it's, you know, not a guaranteed thing. But I think I know a doctor in California that can fix your leg. And I said, okay. So he starts telling me about this procedure called the Ertl procedure, E-R-T-L. Um, and it was basically a procedure that was developed this was back in World War II um, by Dr. Ertl. And uh, who was, I think it was the grandfather of the gentleman that I went to see in California, if I'm not mistaken. And um, basically to get to some of these combat wounded veterans back into the workforce. And basically what it is, is they do a bone bridge below your knee. You have two, two bones, your tibia and fibula. Okay. And it was basically doing a bone bridge between the two bones. So you could have end bearing capabilities. So without the prosthesis on, you could literally bear weight on the very end of your residual limb and not have any pain. And this would allow you to be very highly functioning and, you know, help reduce, if not take away the pain. And so he said, are you interested? He said, I'll make some phone calls and see if we can get you evaluated. And I'm like, okay, I'm interested. Yeah. And at that time, I'm like, this was controlling my life. I'm what? 10 years after, eight years, nine years after my accident. And I just learned to live with chronic pain. And I was self-employed and married, had four kids at home, oh, wow. two sets of twins, um, two sets of twins that uh, the, the older set of twins, my, it's now my ex-wife, uh, but uh she had a set of twins from her previous marriage, and then we ended up having kids, and we had twins again. Oh, and so I worked all the time, but I was in pain. I'd get out of work, take my leg off, and try to help raise kids with on crutches, you yeah. know. And, and you know, it started changing my, my moods. I could be very e easily angered by simple things, and... I knew when Kevin told me that, that all of these things could be fixed and made better if this surgery worked. And I needed to step back, stop working, stop parenting to a certain degree, not all, but invest in me to fix the problem so that I could be a better person, be more productive and not be in pain. Yep. And so we made the decision uh, to have the surgery. 
I ended up flying out to Sacramento, California with my mother to be to see this physician, Dr. Jan Ertl. And the amazing thing was Kevin, who lives in Florida, um, rearranged his schedule. And again, this guy I'd known for five years, but he had taken such a, an amazing interest in helping me and making sure that my prosthesis didn't continue to prevent me from living life, you know, comfort comfortably, um, pain-free. And he rearranged his schedule to be at that consultation with his physician in California. So I'm just amazingly gratified. Uh, I'm just super um I get emotional about it because he's he's an amazing human being that contributed to changing my life in so many aspects in a very positive way. Yep. So I have uh, the surgery. I, I go up for the consultation. I take that back. I go up for the consultation, and then the physician says, I absolutely can help you. I can fix it, describe all the things that he was going to do, what it was going to do to me, how, how, how all the recovery. And Kevin said, this is going to be the plan. You're going to have this surgery. You're going to stay off your leg for, I think it was eight weeks and do all these exercises, all these different things that you need to do in order for it to heal up the way it's supposed to heal up. Then you're going to go to Connecticut and have your prosthesis made by a gentleman in Connecticut. Because of my limb and that type of procedure, the way they make the prosthesis is a little bit different. Um, because of the fact that I can bear weight on the very end of my leg. Okay. And most people can't do that because of the fact that the bone is so close to the skin and the way they design prosthetic sockets, which your leg goes into, it's basically around bone, bony prominences. And you, bear, you, vary, you have a little bit of contact with the end of the prosthesis. But with me, in that procedure and the way my limb was was I needed to have a particular type of leg and socket made. So I did exactly what Kevin said. Had the surgery after about fighting. I think it was six. I think it was I want to say it was four or five months that we had to fight with the insurance company to get them to pay for the surgery. Had a lot of letters written, a lot of doctors and prosthetists and people in the medical community wrote you know, notes and recommendations to get the insurance company to change their mind, which they did. Yep. So I flew out, had the surgery, was there for three days, came home, did my recovery at home, um, went to uh, Connecticut with my mom again to um, have my first prosthesis made um, in Connecticut, and then I came home. So I don't remember how long I was home, but I was home for probably two or three weeks. And um, we're outside, you know, playing with the kids. And we're playing wiffle ball. And I, I got up to, it was my turn to, to bat. And one of the kids pitched it and I hit it. And I instinctively ran the first base. No one moved. Like it was like the world stopped and everybody's like, you just ran. Yeah. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, holy shit, I did. And I got super emotional. 
Yep. And that night, I went into uh, the house and wrote Kevin a letter, Kevin Carroll a letter, and just told him, you know, I, uh, how much I appreciate everything that he had done for me over the years, the recommendation, the knowledge, the information that uh, I didn't have here in rural Maine at my fingertips. I just learned so much and I just, I just grew as a, as a person and, and appreciated, you know, um, everything he had done for me. And I just want to tell him, and I wasn't looking for a job. I wasn't looking for anything, but I just wanted to be thankful and appreciative and I wanted him to know it. Yep. Three weeks later, I get a letter in the mail from hangar clinic offering me a job. Wow. I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> all right, I thought, what's this, what's this job working for somebody? And I'd been self-employed, like I said, in the hydro seeding business for, I think, about five years. And then I was in the car wash business for probably six or seven. And some my, my, my point on sending him that level, again, was to get a job. It was, it was all about just being thankful. And, and now I was at a, another crossroads. You know, someone wants me to work for them and go out and share my experience with them and um, didn't have really any education on being, you know, salesperson, but that's the role that they wanted me to, to fill. And so I started moonlighting a little bit with Hanger, working about, I don't know, 15 or 20 hours a week. And they hired me on as a customer service representative. And basically that role was to meet with doctors and therapists and hospitals and to really share the capabilities of hangar clinic and, and what, what we could do for people. And again, I, I didn't, I wasn't like that. I wasn't, didn't go to school to be a salesperson or have knowledge about it. I had my own business and it just people came to it. I didn't have to go out and really do a whole lot of advertising. It just was one of those things, the car wash business people just drove into. Yeah. And um, so um, that was 19 years ago and I worked, like I said, 20 hours a week after about maybe a couple of months, my boss, Scott says, we need you to work 40 hours. You're, you, you what you're doing is creating so much, um, business and, new relationships and inroads to places that we've never had. We want you to work for us full time. And I'm like, Oh my God. And and it was one of those things that I really had to sit back and really think about. I love being self-employed, but I was really, really passionate about doing things to help others not struggle with figuring out, how to live life as an amputee. That makes sense. Um, I didn't have any resources. When I left the hospital years prior, I didn't even leave the hospital with a brochure to even know what to do and how to do it. So I really used my experience to help change how physicians and hospitals and therapists treated this 
population of people that have lost limbs, upper extremity, lower extremity, like you talked about your friend earlier, you know, Uh, that was, that was how I, I I went in there and told my story to folks and and this is what we can do for you. And this is the programs that we would like to develop. And, um, that was again, like I said, 19 years ago. So, I ended up helping do a lot of different things for the company as far as resources and and suggestions on resources that we need and different ideas that we could use to really help inspire folks and give them knowledge so that they were successful and didn't struggle with losing a limb, but yet they were had knowledge to help them prevent certain things that would ever come up that were preventable and knowledge is power. Yep. And so that like I said, that was 19 years ago. And so I went from a customer service representative to a business development manager to a senior business development manager. And then I decided after about 10 years of being on the road and traveling and all over the place, I was like, I, I, I'm just, I don't want to travel anymore. I want to be in operations. I want to manage clinics. And so I got the unique opportunity to manage the clinic that was generally in my home area. Okay. Not my hometown, but the home area. This is the closest clinic to where I'm from. The hospital that I had my amputation at is in the town where this clinic is. And um, I've been managing it for nine years now. And about two years ago, I became the area clinic business manager. So basically what that is, is now I oversee our operations in Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. And and manage the managers. Okay. But I still manage the local office that... um, that, um, I've been managing for a while. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a pretty incredible journey to where I'm at today. Never thought I would be in this, this business, but as I, as I matured and really thought about what, what I wanted to do and what, you know, you know, you always kind of want to try to figure out something that makes you get out of bed every day and yep. want to go to work. And I, I'm in it, you know, I've been doing it for 20 years and every day I get up, I, I can't wait to get into the office and 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 work and 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 do my part and to make sure that not just prosthetic patients because we provide braces too, but anybody that's disabled or has had an accident or a stroke or some medical condition, we provide you know services to those folks to help them carry on with life. Yep, and. Um, it's pretty pretty inspiring, regardless if you're a you know six year old kid coming in to have something done and to be able to go to school and be comfortable, or you're a senior and you know you just got retired and you unfortunately lost a limb and you want to you want to continue to take that retirement path. You know we're we're providing things to to change people's lives, and I've been able to use my journey uh, through this process to help in a very broad uh, landscape and a lot of people 
helping now teach people how to manage businesses to do what we've done to be successful. And um, it's uh, pretty crazy that it's been 31 years since that accident happened. And, wow. and now, now, I'm, now I'm helping people who've also been through what I went through. And um, you know, I don't even know. I've I, I probably met with, I, I, don't even want, I can't even put a number of hundreds and hundreds of patients over my 30 years being an amputee, as well as almost 20 years working for this company, um, going to the hospitals, sitting at people's bedsides, and you know, putting a smile on their face, letting them know that they're not alone, letting them know that they're going to be okay, and that you know, it's a journey. You know, yep. we all go through certain journeys, and um, so if you got someone that's in your corner that can mentor you and help you and fill in those confusing spaces with knowledge and information based on their experience, I mean, that's just, I mean, that makes me get up every day to go to work. That's awesome. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, Chad, um, to go back a little ways. When you had your amputation, how, like what point on the leg did you, were you amputated at? Uh, <clears throat> I was amputated probably about, I'd say about four inches below my knee. Okay. So I still have my, my knee. So you had the, the joint, the knee joint itself there then was intact yep. yet. Yep. Yep. Which is, a, which is, which is a big deal. You know, if you don't have to learn how to use a mechanical knee and you have your own knee to be able to, to bend without really even thinking about it, it's, uh, it definitely was one of those things that was, I, I was happy that they didn't have to take my knee, which I was surprised because my, the gunshot wound was above my knee. So do you, do you have feeling then from that point all the way up to your, to your hip then is, do you have feeling yep. all through even now is, yep. on the end, do you feel on the end? Like, is it like sensitive yeah, to? No, it's not sensitive anymore. Okay. I mean, it was, it was prior to my surgery that I had. Um, the, the revision surgery that I had in California definitely yep. was very sensitive. Um, but now there, there might be a couple of areas that are on my leg that when I feel I don't have like, I feel a little bit numb. I have a little bit of sensation, but not, but not, um, completely gone. Um, but I have, I have, I would say damn near all of my senses down there in my leg. And, um, yeah. Another, another question, you know, these are things that, that people think of, but never, never had the opportunity to ask, or if they do, they're like, Oh no, I, that's inappropriate. I can't ask it. But I, and, and I've heard this before, or I've actually read this before, but I never, at, like I have a friend who, like uh, we just talked earlier about him losing his part of his arm and his hand. But I always want to ask him, did you ever experience, I think they call it like ghost pain, like, like the limb is. Phantom pain. Yeah. Fan, yeah. Yeah. Phantom pain. Like it's still there, but it's, but it's not. I mean, is that a real thing or. Yeah. 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 That's absolutely a real thing. And, okay. And I was, I was fortunate enough that, um, I only had the phantom pain for a few months and it seemed to be more when I was in the hospital. Okay. And it was more like I was feeling like cramping and almost, you know, when you, your, your, your foot falls asleep, your hand falls asleep, it feels like this needling yep. kind of prickly feeling. I felt that a little bit. Um, but 
I, I haven't, honestly, I, I, I haven't had phantom pain or phantom sensation um, in many, 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 many years. It's not, it's not normal for, for that to happen, but you know, there are people that out that are out there that say, because I had the epidural in my back, it oh. kind of retrained the nerve system, okay. uh, nervous system to, 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 to make it so that I wasn't going to have prolonged phantom pain because they cut through nerves and stuff and your brain, they don't flip your hand switch off or your, your leg switch off to stop the communication. Your, your brain remembers it, especially if you've, especially if you've had like something done to your leg or your hand that's been sore for a long time and then you had the amputation done, okay. your brain remembers that. Um, and everybody's different. Every, every, every person, like we put a hundred people in the room and ask them the same question. Every person would say some, something different when they have it, how often they have it. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, that can be debilitating for some folks. And I, I just got to guess that the, the prosthetic business or how prosthetics are made and that's been leaps and bounds from 1992 to 2023, I would, I would assume. Yeah. You know what's funny, and I get teased about it a lot. Uh, so, I like I told you earlier that I was very self-conscious about it. I used to have a, um, uh, a calf portion, like the it's really modular. Like you have like a shaft that's on the inside that goes from your socket to the prosthetic foot. That usually nowadays people don't cover their legs. Very very few folks will want a cosmetic cover on their leg. And they just, you just see the pylon and you see the sock, you see all the components. There's yeah. nothing, it doesn't look real. Um, but back in the day, I mean, I had custom cover put on it. When I went to Oklahoma the second time, there was someone that airbrushed hair on it. So oh, it looked really? like, wow, <laughs> it'd be a museum piece today. <laughs> I but guess. Uh, as, as, as I've gotten older, I don't, that stuff doesn't bother me. I'm very comfortable with who I am and what it looks like. And, um, no, it's just, it's, it's all metal or carbon or, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely changed. I've got a computerized pump on my prosthesis that is a vacuum pump that holds me into the prosthesis that um, you don't want a piston in and out of the prosthesis. So when you walk, you don't want your limb to go in and out of the prosthesis, even a little bit because you'll get friction or ingrown hairs or just skin issues okay. caused by movement within the socket. Yep. And I've got a vacuum system that basically makes it so that it's just, there's no movement and it, um, it just keeps regulating the same vacuum inside the socket so that I don't have pistoning. Um, being in the business, I guess I'm fortunate enough to know various reps and people that have technology and they want me to, wear their gear and stuff yeah. and I'm at my office right now because my cell service at home is not the greatest and I'm okay. looking at my office and there's a lineup of four feet next to my desk and multiple legs and <laughs> <laughs> I've got computerized I got one foot that's computer has a computerized ankle that reads uh, inclines and declines and basically knows where your foot is in space okay so that um, it, it adjusts to different angles which is pretty cool yeah, I imagine with computer technology, this stuff just gets better and better every year. And and uh, oh, 
amazing. Which is, which is, you know, I mean, I mean, you you think of some of these folks that are going through this. I mean, I think a lot has to do with, you know, when you talk, go back and think about the cosmetic covers and people not doing as much today as they might have done back in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, even maybe in the early 2000s is, you know, a lot, you see a lot on TV now, a lot of these, you know, the recent conflicts and, Iraq and Afghanistan created a lot of prosthetic patients that have been on TV and and been in commercials and you know athletes on TV that are in the Olympics that are running with prosthetic limbs. Yep. And I think it just brought so much attention that people just have gotten to the point where it's just almost like kind of normalized to not have cosmetic covers on your legs and you know. Um, people bring in certain fabrics that we laminate into the prosthetic socket that could be your favorite sports team. It could be camouflage. It could be, you know, American flags. It could be Marilyn Monroe. I mean, you think about <laughs> it, whatever someone's interests are, yep. they personalize their prosthesis. Now they're proud of it. And it just, that, that in itself is just amazing for me to think about. Like it's almost like someone's getting a tattoo. Yeah. You know, they, 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 they're, they're proud of it. They want people to see it and they just, you know, they'll come in and they'll be like, Oh, look at this fabric that I got. I can't wait to use it. Whatever. <laughs> and it's just, it's cool. You know, I've had camo ones and American flags and, you know, red socks and just different ones over the years. And now it's just black. It's regular black carbon. I'm happy to see that everything's kind of come full circle from it just being kind of a, uh, I don't want to say shameful, but kind of a taboo, kind of yeah. keep everything hidden type thing and don't want anybody to know that you're, you know, have a prosthesis to it just out and about everywhere nowadays. You know, I, I don't know. It's more, nor- I guess if you want to say it's more normalized nowadays. It, you know what? You're and, exactly and, right. It's exactly what it is. It's more, it, it is more almost like it's accepted. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like we were, we were like hidden. You know, and then all of a sudden, like, because of all of these national or worldwide events that have happened that brought people into certain media outlets, it could have been a story here, a story there in the newspaper, or magazines, or on TV, but it's just, it's it's amazing how that transformation, it's, it's, it's such a wonderful thing that people aren't afraid to show it and aren't, like, embarrassed by it. Yeah. And it's really going to help people that have gone through this, their mental health by, by seeing those, you know, other people that, Hey, there's someone else out there just like me looking there and a professional athlete and they, you know, lost a limb and, and it's, it's really got to, I would assume help in the healing process and especially mental health nowadays is, is it really could, you know, destroy you and put you down a, bad path fast, you know, you go through such a traumatic event and, and like I said, it's more normalized and, and I, I hope that just kind of helps with the whole healing process. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So another thing you kind of touched on is, oh, oh my mic here is, um, I guess what I want to say is, you know, I, I don't know how strong your faith is and, and, you know, I, I believe there's a higher power out there. And, I, you know, I believe it's, you know, he puts you in this situation and as a teacher. 
You know, I, I think everything happens for a reason in life. And I, I think, you know, it sounds, maybe sounds horrible, but, but I think things happen to people in order for them to uh, educate and, and help others. And I think that, you know, as horrible as it was that that accident happened and you were shot and lost your limb, that, you know, in, in some way maybe your life is is better. And, and you made such an uh, impact on so many people's lives, and it's so inspiring to hear your story. Like I said, when I read your story, I'm like, oh, i got to have this guy on. It just like it, said, it gives me goosebumps just listening to your story. I wanted to in- interject and jump in, but I'm like just sitting back and like, yeah, just put tingles up my spine and just listening to your story. It's amazing. I, I you know, I, I couldn't agree more about, you know, things happen for a reason. You know, I mean, earlier on, you know, it was more like, why me? Yeah. You know, same with my family. You know, why him? You know, my parents, my mom specifically struggled. You know, why Why he had so much going for him. And as time evolved, you knew that I knew and people knew that someone was watching out for me that day. Yep. I am, I, I don't go to church, you know, but I am, I believe in that higher power. I don't, I don't. I pray to myself, you know, I pray to, for things that my parents are huge and they're going to Catholic church and they, they're regulars every week. You know, I go once a year on Christmas Eve or a particular holiday. It's just, I just haven't got into going, but um, I, I do believe in that. I believe in that wholeheartedly. I, I couldn't agree with you more, you know, and, and I do what I do today. And I know it's because of the journey that I went on and the choices that I've made to do and work in this industry and work in this business is to help people, you know, and I'd like to think that just that fraction of folks, even it doesn't even have to be an amputee. They're empowered by people overcoming adversity yep. and sure. continuing on with their life and continuing to be active. I'm super active and I still do things and people forget now that I'm an amputee because I do so many things. You know, I get buddies that are like, hey, come over and help me lift this heavy whatever. And it's like, take it out to my truck. And it's like, oh, my God, I always forget that you're missing your leg. You just don't know, you know. But yep. I think that you said it, couldn't have said it any more perfect. And I've said it the same way you said it. You know, it's like someone was looking out for me and someone had a plan for me, you know, and definitely was I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing why I'm doing why I survived this crazy, you know, journey. You know, and I'm doing it and I'm doing it to help others. I'm doing it to make a difference. And I think, you know, um, it it took time and maturity to get to the point where you can think this way. And um, um, I'm so happy that I do what I do today. And, and, you know, I could have stuck it out and gone into the engineering world, but maybe that would have not have been a positive thing, but I think life guides you, yeah, you know, based sure. on individual experiences. And at the end of the day, it's the choices that we make. And I think sometimes you make those choices and it brings you to another part of your life that you now start to appreciate and learn more about and can sit back and go like, this is why all these things happen. This is why all these different pieces fit together the way they have, even though it was a struggle and it was a challenge and it hurt and it was sad and emotional. 
it's not now. I mean, I do get emotional sometimes when I do, but it's, I think it's more because I'm I'm older and I'm more sensitive about things. And I think it happens when you get almost 50 years old. You you know you you get sensitive when you talk about things that are that you're passionate about. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Chad, for sharing your story. Well, I appreciate the time and I appreciate your interest for sure. All right, thank you. As the saying goes, two roads diverge in the woods, and Chad Thompson took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Thank you, Chad, for finding your way and turning your darkest hour into a lifelong passion that has helped countless amputees. You have made a positive mark on society with your work in prosthetics. I am in awe of your bravery that came to light 31 years ago. The outpouring of love and support from your friends, family, and community the days and months after your accident just speaks to the strength of your character. Stay safe out there and enjoy all that Mother Nature has to offer. If you like what you heard today, click the subscribe button to hear more upcoming stories. If you or someone you know have a survival story you'd like to share, contact me at I survived the wild outdoors at gmail.com.